Welcome to The Neighbor Next Door, a podcast about the power and importance of neighboring. I'm your host, Matthew Johnson. Good neighboring is medicinal. These are words of insight from Dr. Justin Moore, a physician who has researched the impact of social isolation and loneliness on a person's health. Adam and I met Justin in 2018 at a conference on healthy communities. In his address, he offered data to support the importance of our work. And so naturally, when we started this podcast, we wanted to have him as a guest. We definitely were not disappointed, and I don't think you will be either. Justin helps us articulate the new challenges we face regarding social isolation and loneliness and how grassroots efforts like neighboring can help make a difference. So grab a seat and join me and my co-host, Adam Barlow-Thompson, as we sit down on the front porch with Dr. Justin Moore. We started by asking Justin to explain just exactly how he got to the place he is today. Justin Moore. I'm an endocrinologist by training. That's a hormone specialist, you know, thyroid mm-hmm. and pituitary and diabetes issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I left a pretty traditional academic practice back in 2014 uh, without a real goal in mind. I didn't know what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just a little burned out. So within a few weeks or months of leaving, I started getting some opportunities to kind of do uh, consulting work that was a little more kind of, I guess, public health or community oriented. Uh, And then I got a big opportunity uh, to work for the Medical Society doing some work that was very diverse. It was a CDC grant that looked into the built environment and food availability and uh, uh, all the way down to really good granular clinic stuff, you know, like how do patients make their way through a clinic appointment and get better care. Uh, so I, uh, I started doing that kind of work and I've, I've kind of stuck with that. So, so out of that, you've kind of developed this expertise around isolation. I mean, when we heard you speak a year ago, it was really, uh, focused on social isolation and and loneliness. Did that, you just found that in the research that you were doing? Uh, no, it's interesting. A few years ago, the state health department, the Kansas Department of Health and Environment, asked me, along with some other people, I think, to try to identify some emerging public health threats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they asked me to speak at the at something called the the Chronic Disease Alliance of Kansas uh, uh, meeting. And so I I looked around and you know, the what public health is to most people is fairly obvious. It's sort of, uh, you know, preventing infectious disease outbreaks and, you know, trying to reduce the smoking rate and make sure people don't drink too much and, mm. you know, whatever. Mm. Uh, uh, but uh, as I kind of nosed around, I found a few things that I thought were maybe being under addressed at a policy level. And one of them was social isolation. Uh, and as you, and so I ended up, sort of digging into that topic and speaking at the CDAC conference. And, uh, and that has led to 
several opportunities for me to go out and speak to groups and talk to guys like you about this. So mm-hmm. I'm very careful about wh- about how I present this. I am not a social scientist. You know, I am, mm, right. I, I am I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not an engineer. I'm not any of these people that may have some additional expertise in this. So mm-hmm. so I'm very careful just to point out to people that I'm I'm presenting very mainstream medical literature here. So if stuff that I present sounds kind of medicalized, that's why. Uh, sure. um, but yeah, that's, that's how I got into this. Yeah. Uh, okay. So one of the things that I noticed, uh, from, uh, the presentation that I heard you give before was defining the difference between social isolation and loneliness. So that, that might be a great place yeah. to dig into for our listeners to clarify that terminology. Right. No, it, it, in some ways it's an important differentiation. So, uh, social isolation is, a uh, state of being. So that means that you are simply uh, separated from other members of your species, right? So if, <laughs> okay. if you if you or I were to go live in a hermitage out in the woods, we would mm-hmm. be socially isolated, mm-hmm. right? Uh, whereas loneliness is kind of our response to that state of being, right? Mm-hmm. So you can feel lonely in, in a room full of people if you don't have anyone to interact with. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's a, a writer named Donald Hall who died within the last couple of years. He's a poet and used to write for The New Yorker. And he talked a lot about how he uh, enjoyed being alone. He spent most of his days alone. He was a he was a writer. Uh, but then after his wife died, who lived in the house with him, obviously, he uh, started to notice that once in a while, uh, solitude, which he enjoyed, uh, would give way to loneliness. Mm-hmm. And he would always look forward to the return of solitude after mm-hmm. some time of loneliness. Mm. Yeah. But in a lot of ways, the the difference is a little bit academic, at least from a medical standpoint, Uh, because uh, no matter how you ask the question. So if you if you go out and look at survey data to see who reports feeling lonely or you look at census data to see who lives alone or you look at this data from a, a number of different angles, it all seems to have roughly the same effect on risk, meaning someone who reports loneliness or who is objectively socially isolated or a number of other measures, they all carry about a 25 to 30% excess risk of mortality on any given day. Uh, Mm, So from a sociological perspective, it's interesting to differentiate between the two, but from a pure kind of, you know, nuts and bolts medical perspective living alone is bad for you in some ways and living with other people who you don't effectively interact with and feel lonely anyway is equally bad for you now what does a 25 percent increased risk of death really mean in terms of other things that we know about well that's roughly 15 cigarettes a day right so somebody who goes out and smokes a half a pack or more of cigarettes a day has about a 25 30 percent increased risk of dying on any given day compared to someone who doesn't so it's an interesting benchmark to put this loneliness number against yeah, yeah. i mean interesting or slash shocking yeah, yeah. I, right. I mean yeah. because we, and and what you shared at the beginning about this is kind of under the radar. Right. I mean, I've grown up hearing nothing but how bad cigarettes are, yeah. right? Like quit smoking, social impact, secondhand smoke, all is really prevalent. I've never heard any ad campaigns talking about, have you connected with a person today? Yeah. Have you, you know, so it is really shocking, in, you know, from, from what I've just grown up listening to. Yeah, yeah I know. 
I, I thought it would also be helpful for folks just to talk a little bit about the the trends in isolation and loneliness in yeah. terms of what's happening to us as a society or you know what are we what are we finding i think we all feel this and we all kind of have this assumption that we're people are getting more and more isolated more and more lonely but is there some that you could illuminate uh, along those lines uh yeah so my understanding of this is that if you look at the elderly population, you know, especially people over the age of 80, rates of social isolation have been roughly stable for decades, uh, mm. since at least World War II. Oh, mm. wow. Um, but what seems to have happened recently is that uh, social isolation and loneliness have been trickling down into younger and younger age groups. Uh, so the Bureau of Labor Statistics for the last 20 years or so has done a continually updated survey called the American Time Use Survey that asks a lot of very granular questions about how people are spending their time, sleep and all kinds of things. But one of the questions they ask is uh, related to uh, what fraction of your day you spend alone. Mm-hmm. And so now, uh, whereas social isolation and being alone used to be something that was almost exclusively in the 60 plus 65 plus group we're seeing people in their early 40s who report spending most of their days completely alone mm, uh, mm. so i think that's the trend we're seeing is that yeah. you know what was quote unquote normal for an 80 year old 50 years ago mm-hmm. although in truth not normal at all mm-hmm. that that has trickled down into into groups that traditionally have been very very uh integrated with the community and and interactive with others mm-hmm. And I think I think this is one of the slides that I've stolen from you and used in in my own talks. And it shows like not only, you know, that the trend line for people spending time alone is going up, but it shows all the other categories where they could have spent time. Like, did you spend time with your spouse or with your family or with coworkers or with friends or with neighbors? And all of those, the trend line goes down. Right. They're spending less time, even Mm. with family or like their spouse or their children. There's less time there and more time alone. It's right. like the only one that's going up. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. No, I thought that may be true. It's mm-hmm. crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are there some indicators of what's like what's causing that? Yeah. So I, I, I get out onto thin ice here because I'm not okay. I, I'm not a uh, not somebody who's really an expert in the social science of this. But my understanding or my interpretation of what the data that I've seen seems to be that this starts a lot earlier than we think it does. Uh, mm-hmm. Meaning that, uh, and this is, I t- sort of turn into a grouchy old man screaming, get off my lawn here a little bit. But uh, <laughs> w- once upon a time, uh, kids were very free range creatures, right? Mm. Where they sort of did what they want uh, when they wanted. I mean, I grew up on a farm. My nearest neighbor was over a mile away. And I, I never remember feeling lonely on the farm because I, you know, by the time I was in school, I was a Allowed to walk to the neighbor's house, you know, a mile away. <laughs> a mile away, uh, right? Uh, and we we've we have good data showing that the amount of space that kids are allowed to occupy has gradually shrunk over time, mm-hmm. uh, and the restrictions on their time have gone up in other ways too. So, mm-hmm. my argument has been in uh, at some level that we have sort of closed off kids' access to the environment, including other kids, mm-hmm. and kind of forced them to seek interaction through some other medium. And that medium has become, you know, online multiplayer video games or social media or, you know, other things, electronic oriented things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so now we're, we're up into, uh, 
as you move forward through your teens and into adulthood, I, I think that trend is just continuing. Uh, Gene Twenge, who's a psychologist in California who's written a lot about this, calls our current generation of kids iGen because in 2012, mm. that's when uh, smartphone ownership hit 50% in America. Mm. Uh, so she claims that there's a sharp divergence of the data that year showing kids spending more time interacting electronically and less time interacting in person uh, and and moving forward. So we now know that about about three-fourths of uh, excess leisure time amongst unemployed men is occupied by multiplayer online video games. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and I, I don't and so on and so forth. So I don't my, my goal here isn't to disparage social media or to disparage video games. I know a lot of people get legitimate joy out of all these things. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a growing body of evidence that those don't necessarily replace whatever you lose in terms of real interaction with other people. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely one of the things that I think is most stark about all of this research is that the people who whose risk is growing most exponentially right now are young right. men in particular, I think, right? Is that... Yeah, so I kind of divide it into three groups. One is sort of preteen and teen girls who are at real risk mm. uh, because they've moved so much of the interaction uh, into an electronic place where they're kind of vulnerable to a certain kind of bullying and whatnot. Uh-huh. And then, and then you know, men in their 20s and 30s, as you said, and then elderly uh, people, especially elderly men. I think there are a few observations that have been made fairly recently that are probably uh, worth talking about. If we go back to those three those three kind of at risk groups, the uh-huh. you know teen and younger girls and and men in their twenties and thirties, then elderly folks, uh, within that teen group, um, there's this uh, instinct, and I have it too. There's this instinct to sort of cut kids off from all electronics and try to turn them into you know little house in the prairie style. Yeah. Like <laughs> I have know. that as well with yeah. my child. Yes. Right? Yeah. No, I, I felt the same. I felt the same impulse. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but if you look at the at the research on this a little more critically, uh, a small amount of electronic interaction, or at least access to social media, games, whatever, actually seems to be protective. Meaning, kids that have a little bit, like mm-hmm. maybe ninety minutes a day, actually seem to do a little better than their peers who are cut off completely. Mm. Okay. So I think if you're a parent looking for, and again, I, I want to be very careful here, not a pediatrician, not a whatever. <laughs> yes. But if you're a parent looking for ways to do this kind of thing with your kids, I would say uh, don't cut them off completely, but limit them to a reasonable amount of time, you know, a couple hours a day or less. Mm-hmm. And make it as interactive as you can make it. Meaning if they want to be on the phone, you know, sharing Instagram photos with their friends, have them sit like on the couch with you and not be ensconced in their bedroom somewhere doing this in secret. Mm. I, you know, I think it, it leads to some potentially bad things. Right. So for, uh, for people in the workplace, meaning those 20 something, 30 something uh, men, there's some good research out there about uh, modifying the way the workplace does break time. 
So if you go to your average everyday uh, job, you know, most people show up at eight or nine in the morning, have maybe a 15 minute break during the morning at some point, then have their lunch hour, then another break in the afternoon, and then they go home at you know five or six at night. The trouble with that is that if you go by any random business here in town at, say, 2.30 in the afternoon, you will find people sitting in their car in the parking lot with the car running as they surf through Facebook, right? Mm, yeah. it's, it's sort of this mini tragedy unfolding <laughs> before your eyes. <laughs> that is so true. Uh, you know, I've seen that, and I've never really put it together. Like, right. what was happening? They're on break. Yeah, so, uh, so there have been some companies that have done interesting studies where they – uh, incentivize their employees with extra break time uh, to do their breaks in sort of a more interactive way. So you you know maybe instead of 15 minutes once a day, you get a couple extra breaks in the morning, with the understanding that you will go and take a couple laps around the block with one of your coworkers. Uh, mm. So so by synchronizing breaks with other people in the office and by putting some minor restrictions on what you do during that break. There is some indication that people uh, get happier and and spend more time with their with their fellow employees. Wow! Yeah. Uh, in older folks, uh, there are a couple things to talk about. Uh, one is that several, both public and private organizations, have taken this problem on kind of aggressively and head on. Uh, mm. The National Health Service in the UK actually has a project going all the way back to the 60s where they were alarmed at the uh, suicide rate amongst some of the older folks and started doing structured sort of outreach to people who they thought might be at risk of isolation. Mm. And they've shown that uh, certain things get a lot better. You really do reduce the the risk of suicide in older people just by mm. reaching out to them. Even if the people know that you're paid by the National Health Service to come out and say hi, it seems really? to work. Yeah, I mean, it, the 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 idea that uh, that it has to be, you know, someone bringing over an apple pie or cookies or something right. probably. I mean, that's great if it happens, but right. but yeah, right. e even if it's sort of like the placebo effect in medicine, people respond to placebo even when you tell them it's placebo. In this case, people just like the company. Even if they know the National Health Service is sending someone out to talk to them, it's still someone right. to talk to. Yeah, uh, and you'd still develop a relationship over time. Um, mm. Yeah, and then finally, I you know, every time somebody who's my you know guy in his forties talking about this, it it's it always tends to circle back to social media. And there, there is one good randomized trial that I know of. It was done by some investigators at Stanford where they took very high utilizers of Facebook in particular. So somehow they had this Facebook data and they were able to quantify exactly how much time and, and how much uh, energy people were putting into Facebook in terms of liking things and forwarding links and the stuff that goes on on the platform. And they paid people to be in the study. They paid 2,000 people to be randomized to either just continue doing what they were doing or to delete their account. Uh, and I think they had to delete it. I think it was for a month, but don't quote me on that. Uh, well, I guess I'm getting quoted on that. I'm on date. <laughs> this is but anyway, yes. it, was, it was for, I think it was for a month. And anyway, so then they tracked several, uh, well, they tracked a lot of quality of life indicators for folks and people who deleted their accounts, uh, they were able to show definitively that they were happier, they were less politically polarized, they spent more time with their family, and they spent more time with uh, with neighbors than people who had not uh, deleted their accounts. And interestingly, they did a follow-up study where they just asked people about, you know, a few weeks later, a few months later about their 
Facebook use after that. And people who'd been paid to delete their account were far less likely to have re-engaged with the platform than people who had uh, who had just continued their usual use, yeah. which makes you think that it's almost an addictive uh, uh, yeah. mechanism. You know, it's, it's yeah. the same behavior that you would see out of someone who had successfully quit smoking, right? Where they're afraid, mm. they're afraid to go out on the patio at work where there are other smokers because they might smoke again. Right? Yeah. So very similar pattern of behavior. And right. so anyway, there was clear evidence that people interacted more and, uh, and were happier mm. once they got off the platform. Again, these were very heavy users. I can't remember the numbers but they were using the platform they were using facebook a lot okay. before they stopped yeah. so i don't know that it applies for someone who you know right. checks their messages twice a day or something mm-hmm. it may not be yeah. the same population but yeah. if you're if you're someone who worries about how much you're using twitter or facebook or whatever you know it might apply to you I don't yeah know. Why do you do this? I mean, why didn't you just stick in the normal, you know, traditional setting and and do that work? Why, why it seems like this clearly is a passion. Why is that something that for you in particular seems so compelling and interesting and that makes you want to go out and do it? Uh the boy that's a that's a interesting uh hard question. So there's no there's no one thing that led me away from you know, the traditional practice of medicine toward other things. I guess on one hand, I have to admit that I was just living in a very privileged situation where I, you know, as a practicing doc, I made a lot of money and I didn't spend that much of it. Uh, you know, I live in a relatively modest house. I drive a car that's paid for. I bicycle commute most places I go when it's not raining. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I had money in the bank where I could leave. I had a little freedom, and I understand not everybody is in that situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, some people like us just leave anyways, even if we don't have money. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, sometimes it happens. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I just I got burned out on the way medicine was done. Uh, you know, it, it felt like every day I had 30 or 40 people lined up outside the office door, um, mostly with problems that I couldn't solve, you know, Mm. um, even in my, even in my current practice working with underserved folks, most of them don't need an endocrinologist. Most of them need, uh, you know, a better place to live and money and access to medications and some stuff that it's just really hard. It's really hard to help them with when you're in a traditional practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, So as opportunities arose to do things that were a little more, I guess, publicly oriented, I took them. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've just been lucky enough that I've been able to be paid for a lot of that work. That's awesome. Well, it's yeah. I'm super grateful that you're out there doing that and uh, stirring yeah. up and talking about this type of health because it's refreshing to hear. Mm-hmm. I, I really admire the work you guys are doing, too. I think uh, there is an element of good neighboring that really is medicinal. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, mm-hmm. o- only about 15 percent of any person's risk can be modified by their doctor, you know, in terms of your risk of getting sick or dying or whatever today, about 15% of that is, is Mm -hmm. modifiable by any given physician interaction. The other 85% is all 
uh, the other stuff you guys talk about all the time. Do you mm-hmm. live in a place that you feel safe and do right. you, do you have enough money to eat? And you know, are, are you dry when it rains and warm when it's cold and those mm-hmm. kind of things? Yeah. 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 And somehow too, I mean, when you say it, it just, it sounds so much more valid than when we say it. We're just like, <laughs> yeah. it's that, uh, it's that MD, man. <laughs> people really people just like stand up and salute. <laughs> Yeah, we we've been telling people ever since we saw you a year ago. Now, um, we were, we've been telling people he's like he's like the the person who knows why we should be doing the things that we're doing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and so like we, he gets all of that stuff. He's like the brains behind our practical. This is what yeah, it how, what yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah. It's really helpful. Yeah, and the, the, it, I don't know if it's ironic or not, but the work you guys are doing is very likely. Uh, prolonging your own lives. Uh, there, there's some good literature out there showing that uh, whatever you can do to make your work more about others and less about yourself, the longer you live. Uh, it may be so powerful as to actually reverse all that excess risk from loneliness we talked about. Maybe, meaning huh. you might be able to reduce your risk by about a quarter by doing other focused activities instead of self-focused. So really? uh, are you saying like, I don't have to work out then? That, yeah, that's right. <laughs> just uh, just do a good deed every day. And that, that replaces 10 sit-ups. Uh, yeah. That's right. I, you heard the doctor say it. So <laughs> it's been recorded. <laughs> This is the best podcast interview we've done. (laughs) You're getting all kinds of permission. I love it. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. This was great. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Neighbor Next Door. We hope it motivated you to get out there and be a good neighbor. Please subscribe to our show so you don't miss any of our episodes. And if you have ideas, questions, or topics that you think would be helpful to us, please contact us through our website. Our website... One topic that they might add would be more banjo in all episodes. Yes. Probably. Yes, they should. They should. Um, But why don't we just have them email that to you? I just feel like that just needs to be in your inbox. That's what you need. Okay, we'll see. So our website, www.neighboringmovement.org, where there's lots of other free stuff and resources you can check out. want to give a shout out to our editing work that was done by Vistifer. The AmeriCorps volunteer who saves our day every single week. (laughs) Oh, every single day, actually. Every single week he saves our day. how it works <laughs> our background music is written and performed by brutal bear after hours and hours of uh composing and orchestrating in adam and ashley's garage and that's it that's right folks with that we must sign off so until next time happy neighboring happy neighboring In your faces!